Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. Welcome back to another episode of the AAF Exchange. We are going to continue our discussion with Douglas Holtz-Agen on the impact and response of the COVID-19 pandemic. Doug, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. How are we doing today? Doing great. It's been a uh, another relatively quiet week in D.C. for policy with Congress still out. Uh, I haven't really seen much changes on the next phase of the response to COVID-19, have you? Uh, no, that, you know, we're seeing the typical politics of this kind of uh, circumstance where, you know, people float message bills that aren't really intended to be legislation that gets signed by a president. So we're seeing a little bit of that, but not anything on the surface that looks like real progress. Mm-hmm. You wrote a little bit today, I think, in your dish about the rental things that are going on. Um, I didn't plan on talking about that, but I saw it in your dish, so I at least wanted to bring it up. What 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 was going on there? Well, the the president is part of his executive orders a while back. Uh, in addition to the payroll tax deferral and you know, things like that, he, he sent the agencies off to study what they could do about evictions. Mm-hmm. Turns out the the Centers for Disease Control, CDC, has the capacity to issue a stop on evictions in the interests of public health. And that's exactly what they did. They said between now and December 31st, you cannot evict anybody. And this isn't just people in federal housing or federally supported housing. It's anyone. And so uh, that's an enormously powerful uh, thing, which sort of shocked me, uh, number one. Number two, it, it's it's really unfair in some deep sense because what it says is you can stop paying your rent but there's nothing for your landlord in this it just it just means you, you're allowed to stiff somebody so it just shifts the, the the problem and and that doesn't seem too good and then i started thinking well how big is this problem like you know i've seen numbers all over the place so i went digging into some publicly available data sources um one from the national uh, multifamily housing council so apartments uh apartments by and large and um that showed, you know, not a very big problem. Maybe two percentage points of, of renter households might be in this uh, vicinity. And then I went looked at uh, the, the census survey of, of the household pulse, which they've been doing every week uh, during the, the recession. And, um, you know, th- that shows a lot of people who are not confident that they're going to be able to pay their rent next month. Right. It's from either no confidence, slightly confident. That's all. Is, is well over 30% of the, of the rental population. That's a really big number. And so um, it, the dish didn't come to any great conclusions. It just said, you know, this looks like it could be an issue. It seems really hard to figure out how big this problem is. And maybe the solution is to make sure that there's enough income in people's pockets in the low end of the income distribution so that they can pay their rent if they have that problem or other things if they don't, rather than trying to find the eviction risks and get, and get money to them. It's, you know, it's it's just one of the pieces of fallout from the from the pandemic. We're seeing, you know, it shows up everywhere in the economy. Yeah, I mean, that 33 percent number seems huge. And it sounds like something that Congress and policymakers should definitely be focused on as they come back in the next couple of days. Certainly is on the list. Right. I mean, that, that's for sure. Let's just go through some of some of the reports we've been getting about the impacts since there's not really much to talk about um, response at this point unless we want to talk about the same thing over and over again. For you, the big news of the week, uh, of course, was uh, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, released its revised budget outlook for the year. What is this revised outlook, and can you walk us through the results? 
Um, sure. The the revised outlook um, is a uh, is an always an August um, a publication. So the the typical CBO cycle is January. You put out the budget and economic outlook. First, look at um, what will happen under current law, economic forecast. Layer on top of it, the the laws on spending and revenues, and you get the the outlook for the the budget. Uh, then the president submits his budget, and the CBO takes a look at that and revises in light of that uh, its economic forecast and and its budget forecast. And that's the sort of starting point for Congress. They're always using that quote baseline for all the legislation they're going to produce. Then. Uh, you get to August and they do the, the summer update to the budget and economic outlook. They add in any legislation that might have passed and they modify the economic forecast as appropriate. And out comes a new August update. And, that, and that's usually uh, a news story in August because, as you've noted, there's nothing going on. Um, this year, it's a really big news story because a lot happened in between January and now. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, because of the pandemic and the, the dramatic downturn, Congress actually forced CBO to update its economic uh, projections about a month ago. And so for the first time, it, it, it sort of pulled apart revised economics and revised budget outlook. So we got the economic and they show a sharp downturn in the second quarter, recovery in the third and thereafter. That's been uh, out there for a month. Now we got the budget implications. And so not surprisingly, uh, you find out that the, the deficit is going to be much, 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 much bigger than a trillion dollars this year. It's over three trillion dollars. Uh, it's 16 percent of GDP, 16 percent of national income, which is enormous. Um, we are going to collect 16 cents of every national dollar in taxes this year, and we'll spend 32. And that, that's a, just a shocking number. And um, uh, unlike anything else we've ever seen. So we get this enormous um uh, increase in the deficit. Because of that, we get a big rise in the debt. We're borrowing a, a, a lot. And the CBO projects that not this year, but in the very uh, near future, year next year and the year after, the, the debt will get larger than the size of the economy. So debt to GDP will go over 100%. And indeed, the debt to GDP ratio will be the largest in US history. No longer will you have to qualify with that outside of World War II, right? It, it will be larger even than, than during World War II. So that's a big news story, right? We're getting this enormous um, impact. Uh, the, the other big piece of news in there was, is slightly more subtle and, and really quite uh, stunning. And that is the impact of projected interest rates on the budget and the debt is, is really powerful. And so CBO lowered its interest rate forecast because the Fed has promised to keep rates low for a long, long time. And in the process, they saved more in, in the budget than the CARES Act cost, believe it or not. So it reduced deficits by over $2.4 trillion. CARES Act was 2.3. And as a result, you get this weird result that the deficit gets big in 2020, 2021, but nothing, none of the things we're doing now have any legs, right? They happen and then they go away. But the interest rate stuff lasts forever. And so the deficits are actually smaller in 2024 and 25 than they were before uh, uh, the, the pandemic, which, which no one saw coming. And so briefly, um, we get this sort of narrowing of the deficit because of, of the lower interest costs. And then we go back to our old pattern, which is rising debt relative to GDP and the need for, for Congress to get it together. So it was interesting. Um, for budget nerds. And so seven of us read it and it was really exciting. And um, now we can talk about it.
Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's the, the point. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, one thing you said in there I was going to ask you about was, you know, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal that this was the first time the debt would exceed GDP in the U.S. since World War II. That's, I mean, that's an amazing stat. How much does that sort of thing concern you? Um, I know you're a deficit hawk and... It concerns me a lot, actually. Um, you know, the good news people keep pointing to is that with low interest rates, the carrying cost of that debt is lower. And that's true. So the interest rate times the amount of debt is sort of the annual carrying cost. That is a fraction of GDP, um, is not as big as it otherwise would have been. And so you know, this isn't as, quote, threatening. But the trajectory is still ever north, right? We, ha we have not stabilized debt relative to GDP or stabilized the carrying cost of the debt relative to GDP. And that's deeply concerning to me because at a minimum, you have to be able to do that if you're a sovereign nation. You can't just let it spiral out of control. And in the 21st century, which is now 20 years old, we haven't done it. That's a concern. And, and I think people have to start taking that seriously. Not today, but you know, two years from now, three years from now, there's a, a moment when we do have to do something serious. Mm -hmm. we, we've talked about this before that, you know, we have to all think about the health of the economy as well as the public health mission first in, in this moment. Um, and that should be the top priority of policymakers. But are there things that policymakers should be thinking about now in terms of debt and deficits as we inch back to normalcy? Well, again, to emphasize the, the, the key point is right now, these deficits aren't doing any harm. Um, the harm of deficits is typically the government goes and borrows money that would otherwise be available for domestic investment. And so you crowd out domestic investment or to borrow the money, they have to attract capital in from overseas. And in the process, you um, drive the dollar up and make your, your exports less competitive. So you you harm the private sector somewhere in the borrowing because you're, you're, you're sort of pulling away from the, the pool of savings and having to attract uh, that into the government. That's not happening now because investment is quite low. Businesses aren't expanding. And savings are enormous. We've seen this, the saving rate exceed 20% at times when it's typically in the sixes and sevens. And so it has you know, tripled at least um, in the past couple of months. And so if, if you actually just look at what's going on in the economy, people are saving and the government's borrowing it, right? And, and, and the great irony is they're borrowing it so they can give it to the people. So we just got this big circle going on, going on at the moment. And, and that's causing no harm. Mm -hmm. uh, so you think Canada Biden, he, he's... Uh, promised a clean energy program that's uh, he says will cost $2.7 trillion over the next 10 years. We have it priced out much, much higher than that. And, um, you know, you have to ask where is he going to get the money for that? Now, he's promised to raise $3.8 trillion in new taxes on affluent individuals. And, and that's great because then he can maybe pay for his clean energy program. But he hasn't solved the underlying problem and he's used up his ability to raise taxes and, and we still have the problem. So there has to be some serious thinking about the existing problem plus new initiatives and making sure it all adds up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so one quick follow up to something you said in the beginning of that was, um, is, it, is that normal to have in recessions uh, people ex savings expand like it is? Or is this unique to this recession? It is especially unique to this recession. Again, we've had this conversation before, but it's worth emphasizing. This isn't a traditional 20th century recession where you get a big inventory buildup, so you lay off the workers and now their their incomes diminish, so they cut back on spending and then you get this sort of feedback effect that leads you down. That that didn't happen at all. Instead, the, the virus hit and affluent zip codes stopped spending on services. So the income didn't decline, it was still there, 
the spending went way down. Well, that by definition means you're saving more. You're just not spending it. And so we've seen this sharp spike in, in the saving rate that comes from that. Interesting. So, Doug, another issue that a lot of people are dealing with now as students start going back to school or have in-home or some sort of hybrid is that this is going to continue to hurt the economy um, with school closings because a lot of parents are dealing with um, lost productivity because, you know, they have to help their their kids um, with school. Um, and so there's an article in Axios last week that said that with school closings for COVID-19, that it could cost the economy about $70 billion. Could you walk us through some of the issues here? Yeah, I think there are, um, you know, uh, at, at least two, maybe more issues. Um, the, the first is just, you know, allocating your time. You're a parent. You have obligations at work. You have uh, kids at home who need to um, uh, be cared for and also educated. And you have to play the role of, of teacher in some cases. Um, and if nothing else, you have to be the, you know, the study hall monitor and make sure the studying is going on. And um, it's not easy to do. I think, you know, anyone who's had kids just, you know, thinks about this and, and you want to pull your hair out um, it, because it's just an enormous um, struggle. And so this is going to, to interfere with people's ability to be productive. There's no question about it. Um, that loss in productivity means, it, you know, it takes longer to get something done. So less gets done this year. Some things don't get done. Loss in productivity. You know, you can imagine lots of scenarios like that. Um, that that's bad. Um, second thing that happens is the kids don't learn as well. I think everyone's correctly, deeply concerned about this. And, uh, what you worry about most is losing someone, right? You know, someone who's a fairly marginal student, um, they're, they're a high school junior, the, the school's do, trying to do this virtual, they just don't do it. They never graduate. Um, never graduating is the ticket to a lifetime of labor market problems. I mean, that's all there is to it. And so, you worry about that extreme uh, loss uh, um, from, for the person and for the society a, a lot. And then in general, you worry about, you know, the readiness of this cohort of students for the labor market and for life. Um, you know, will they will they have some sort of permanent setback because of this? So those are sort of two productivity issues, one now with the parents, one in the future with the with the current students. Uh, and, and nothing is more important than, than educational attainment in the, in the modern economy. So. It, it is a, a first order problem and something that I think has gotten too little attention, to be honest. Um, there should have been a, a real conversation in, in April and May about what was going to happen in August. And instead, we had a July conversation about what would happen in August. And it was too late. And, and that, that's a problem. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even think about the issues around people just dropping out because, you know, from high school or things like that. And the and the long term effects that will have on on, econo on the economy itself. You know, on this Friday, we'll get the jobs report. And, and I always half jokingly say that, you know, every month we get an advertisement for how important it is to finish high school and, and go to college if you can. It's called the jobs report because the difference in wages, employment rates, um, you know, and, and anything associated with the labor market between those who don't have a degree and those who do is enormous. So how should we think about this issue? I mean, how should policymakers specifically think about this? Are there proposals that could, you know, make it safer for students to go back to school, uh, make it easier for students to learn from home kind of thing? Well, you know, I've, I've been an advocate of uh, a tax credit because it's a way to do it, but basically help for businesses for purposes of getting customers and employees back in into to work. And so that means some liability protection uh, for, for legal to run off legal costs, but, but importantly, money to help you offset the cost of PPE and testing and 
those kinds of things, workplace modifications if necessary, separating um, uh, workstations and, and plexiglass and stores, whatever it might take. The same uh, thinking applies to, to education, right? Think of colleges and the expense that they will incur trying to get students back in. We've seen this, the testing centers and dorms reserved for those people who need to quarantine and distancing and, and the cost of all this, um, uh, high schools, junior highs, just all the way down the chain. There's an enormous um, cost to modifying the schools to accommodate students coming back. That's the conversation that should have happened earlier this year and, and, and money be provided to get that done in time. Now, you can't even do it in real time, right? So we're, we're gonna, I think, essentially muddle through and hope that the progress on the vaccines turns out to be real and not a mirage and, and we can you know, substantially uh, take on the virus and, and sort of move forward next year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like you said, I think it would have been something that we should be having this conversation back in April and May rather than in July, August, and now September when schools are already starting. Yeah. Another another issue that's come up throughout this pandemic has been um, surprise medical billing. This week, Christopher Holt, AAF's director of health policy, released um, some research on surprise medical billing. Can you walk us through what a, um, a surprise medical bill is, first of all, and then what Chris found? So a surprise medical bill is, by definition, something you didn't think you're going to have to write a check for, right? So you go in for uh, a procedure. So let's suppose it's me and um, uh, I get my hip replaced because that's happened. And um, I'm thinking, okay, I got my insurance coverage and I'm good. Don't have to worry about it. I'll pay my deductible. It's going to be a couple hundred bucks and, and, and off we go. And then I get a bill that says, oh, by the way, it turns out the anesthesiologist was not covered by your insurance. He's not in your network, even though everything else in that hospital is, every procedure uh, is covered. There's this piece that's outside the network. And so they bill directly. So I get a bill from my anesthesiologist for $15,000. It's like, whoa, that's the classic surprise medical bill. Like I just assumed because he was operating in the same hospital, he's part of the same network and I wouldn't have to worry about it. So, um, you know, that becomes the issue. Um, it also, you know, can show up most frequently with emergency care because you go to some place because you have to, not because it's in your network. And mm -hmm. so there are two flavors of this, really. Question becomes, who's going to pay? So if it's not going to be me, the the patient and slash um, beneficiary, um, it's either going to be my insurance company paying a, a big uh, price that they had previously just had a contract to avoid, right? They they weren't in the network, so they they weren't going to deal with them. They're too expensive. You're supposed to go to a, an in-network uh, anesthesiologist and, and get they get reimbursed a lot less. Um, or we're going to make the anesthesiologist um, cut their bill back and, and eat a uh, fraction of their fee. So this is really a hot potato question. Right? I mean, there's, if you don't want people to get surprise medical bills and you want the same care to go on, somebody's going to have to get less. Either the insurer pays more or they, they, uh, the provider gets paid less. And the states have... Um, you know, come and grappled with this uh, to a great extent. I, I was surprised. I thought Chris did a great paper. It's worth taking a look at. I thought, you know, this is one of the things where three, four or five states had done something in this. You know, it's in the 20s. This is a, a uh, an issue everywhere and people states are taking it on. There, there seemed to be stylized a couple of different pieces to a solution. Like piece number one is the patient slash beneficiary gets protected. So I, I don't have to pay the bill. So now we got to carve it up between the insurer and the 
and the provider, and, and you can do that in a number of ways. Um, you can um, have a, a, a price set by, by the law. And so you look at the average for commercial rates in the area and say, that's what you get, right? So you, you can pick a, pick a price and just give it to them. Or you could have, uh, and there are many flavors of how you pick the price, but you know, something like that. Or you can say, all right, you guys are just going to have to thrash it out. Good old-fashioned negotiation. And so you can have a, nego a negotiation period. Sometimes the, there's two steps to that. We say, okay, you get a minimum payment from the, the insurer, and then you can go negotiate with the insurer to get the whole fee if you can or see where you guys settle out. You know, that's, that's a matter of the negotiation. And the third flavor is instead of actually negotiating, you go to an arbitrator. And so provider provides uh, what they think they should get, insurer provides what they think they should pay, arbitrator makes a decision, off you go. So there, there are a bunch of different flavors out there. And the takeaway I have from this is it, it's been possible at the state level to negotiate these differences among the, the interested parties. We got to be able to do that at the federal level. And since most areas that you care about, metropolitan areas and, 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 and hospital coverage zones, things cross state lines, it's probably better to do it at the federal level, right? If you're in the, you know, DC, Virginia, uh, Maryland area, there's a good chance that, that you're going to end up crossing state lines for some of this stuff. But same is true in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, things like that. You just have to worry about those things. So I, I, Congress has come to grips with this in the past and failed to get over the finish line. Might be time to try again. Yeah, because I was gonna. My next question was gonna be: Is state action enough, sufficient here, or does the, you know, does Congress and and the and federal policymakers have to take a look at this kind of thing? I'm a, you know, I, I think the this is something the federal government really ought to get in there and take care of. Mm -hmm. So, so since you know this has come up a little bit during the pandemic, do you think this should be part something that Congress might even look at during the next phase of the federal response, or is this something that we should? wait until after to deal with yeah um you know every time they 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 get a must-pass bill it becomes a you know the vehicle for lots of things and so you know the last time we were doing a, a negotiation over pandemic response there were rumors that that surprise medical billing would, would go on that that legislation the president even called for it at one point mm -hmm. so the answer might be that this is their chance to do it they should do it whenever they can but, but it really doesn't have anything to do with the pandemic, so it could be dealt with separately. And, um, you know, often adding too many issues makes it harder, not easier to, to get something done. So, you know, I, I think realistically, you know, we are we are into September. Um, fiscal year ends September 30th. We have two major fiscal issues facing us. One, the pandemic response to um, funding the government so we don't get a shutdown on September 30th. And we have 11 legislative days. That, that, that to me says, don't take on new issues, solve the ones you've gotten and, and, and move on. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I didn't even realize that we were coming up on a, a another government funding debate, which yes. certainly indicates all of this. Any closet is quite full, and if it's important to drag it all out, I'm here for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, one final thing I wanted to ask you about before you left, you, uh, you leave. Um, tomorrow, you already mentioned that tomorrow we get the jobs number or yeah, okay. tomorrow's fr um, Friday. So we get the jobs numbers. What can we expect? Is it going to tell us anything about the recovery? You know, it's so hard normally to, to sort of forecast the jobs number. It really is a dart throwing exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, now it's the same exercise, except that, you know, the dartboard's 
a hundred times bigger. And so I, we could land on uh, half a million jobs. That's what uh, came out uh, yesterday. The estimate from the uh, ADP payroll processing report um, that was viewed as a disappointment. They were expecting nine hundred thousand. Um, we could end up with two million. Um, literally, I think both of those are, are within the realm of possibility. And so uh, I, I'm just going to dodge the question: What's the number going to be? Um, I think there there's information only in in one of two ways. Um, either you get a number that says we got 4 million jobs and everyone is like, whoa, we are recovering much faster and quicker than, than I had anticipated. That's good news. Um, or you get a really bad number and the unemployment rate stays above 10 and then you get panicked and people mm -hmm. concerned about the outlook. So, so I, I, I'm, I'm really lo looking to see where we are on that spectrum that lands anywhere in the, the middle. I don't think we've learned very much. We knew we were going to get some jobs back pretty quickly. We knew we were going to recover somewhat in the third quarter, and we knew that when we were done with that, we'd have a long way to go. And, and my guess is that's where we're going to be. Sounds like a huge dartboard, and I do not envy uh, Gordon's task and his guest event tomorrow morning. I'm, I'm thrilled that Gordon is doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Doug, what do you have planned for this uh, long weekend? Uh, we're going to get to see two sets of friends that we haven't seen in quite some time. Uh, uh, both have backyards with enough uh, distance that we can sit and have a conversation and a glass of wine. And so we'll have a nice Labor Day weekend. I'm looking forward to it. Hope yeah, we do the I'm same. Doing, I'm doing, yeah, I'm doing something similar, seeing a couple of college friends I haven't seen in a long time. So I'm really excited about that. So should be some good time out there. Hopefully we get some good weather to go with it. Uh, the forecast is, is sterling, in fact. So moderate temperatures, low humidity. Um, oh, it won't even seem like Washington, D.C. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> even better. Doug, thank you for joining us today. Uh, I look forward to our continued discussions. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.